Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Inheritance tax rules are due for a shake-up, but can efforts to simplify the system shake off its claim to be Britain's most hated tax? Paul Lewis, the Moneybox presenter and FT Money columnist, is here to remind us that many people are worrying about nothing. Runner-up for the most hated tax prize surely has to be something called IR35, shorthand for huge changes coming to the way freelancers and contractors in the private sector could be taxed from next April. Designed to root out what's called disguised employment, experts argue the proposed changes are flawed and could leave tens of thousands of legitimate contractors counting the cost. Keep listening for more. And finally, to soothe our jangling nerves, Alan Livesey, the FT Lex legend and wine buff, is here to talk about an investment that is literally liquid. Fine wine. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. The wonderfully named Office for Tax Simplification has completed a review, ordered by none other than the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, into the complexity of inheritance tax. If there was ever a subject to get FT listeners and readers going, this is it. Joining me online to discuss the review is none other than Paul Lewis. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi, Claire. Well, you observe in your column this week that IHT is one of Britain's most hated and also most feared taxes, mm. yet yes. for many different reasons. Yes, it is. I mean, I've never really understood it, I must say, because it is the only tax I know that someone else pays it for you. And by the time it's paid, you're dead. So <laughs> what is there to worry about? But what people say to me is, but I've worked hard all my life. I've saved up. I've invested. I've bought our house. I don't want to leave a big chunk of it to the Chancellor. Thank you very much. And that really is at the heart of it, I think, that people feel that the money they've accumulated during their life is is kind of theirs. They've probably already been taxed on it once, if it's income, certainly, they, and they've saved from their income. They may well have been taxed on it once if they've paid their mortgage out of their earned income, then they've paid tax on that. So, of course, many older people didn't pay tax on their mortgage interest for, for many years. And so they feel it's theirs, it's not the Chancellor's, and it's nothing to do with politicians. Now, you argue in your FT Money column this week that many people who fear inheritance tax actually are worrying about nothing. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's about 50%, that sort of number, who really hate or fear inheritance tax. But even the Office of Tax Simplification, which you mentioned, said that only 5%, 1 in 20 estates are subject to it. And that's a bit out of date. When I looked at the current figures, it's actually over the last tax year, 1819, 
3.7% of estates pay it. And so it really is a minority interest. And, you know, if you see 27 funerals go by, the only relatives who'll be weeping because of the tax they have to pay is in one of them. And certainly in your column, you detail the many exemptions that have come out over the years. We won't go into great detail on the podcast, but talk us through some of the, some of the more obvious ones for married people or those in civil partnerships. Yes, people who are married or in civil partnerships, if they leave everything to their spouse or civil partner, completely exempt of inheritance tax. And that was introduced in, I think, from memory, 2007 by Alistair Darling. And there's also a big exemption for the home you live in, which mm. is people's big fear, you know, that their home will exceed the inheritance tax allowance of £325,000. Well, now that is £475,000, really, and, and £500,000 um, is exempt if, if your house is left to a, a descendant and it's worth at least £175,000. So the family home will disappear from the accounts of most people because of those two big changes and from April next year an estate of a million pounds can be exempt from inheritance tax. So those are the two big ones and there's no proposal to change those, um, though the one way about the family home is very complicated and the OTS said it wouldn't change, wouldn't do anything about it because it's a bit too new, though it, it is one of the most ridiculously complicated ones. But there's a couple that it does mention that it doesn't say it wants to change because it can't really propose policy changes, but farms and businesses completely exempt. And that and a business can include simply shares in an AIM-listed company. So these are two massive loopholes for people who have a million pounds to spare, buy some farmland, buy shares in an AIM-listed company, and you can exempt the whole lot. And they are responsible for one and a quarter billion pounds of tax avoidance every year. Now, getting rid of those would certainly have brought in more money and it would make it seem fairer to those of us who don't have a million pounds to buy a farm so we can pass it on to our children. And I think that fairness, feeling of fairness is at the heart of it. And, you know, the change they did propose, you give someone something and live seven years, it, it disappears from the accounts. Mm. But they're saying, well, make that seven years five years. Now, that would seem fairer, though, of course, all the savings will go to the richest 4%. And I suppose my message really is, don't look on inheritance tax as a nightmare. Look on it as a dream, as an aspiration. I want to be in the richest 4% of people when I die, so I can pay inheritance tax. Well, I think that's a dream. <laughs> we'll all keep dreaming. Thanks so much there to Paul Lewis. You can read his column, Why You Shouldn't Worry About Inheritance Tax, now on our website at ft.com money or inside the FT Money section in this Saturday's weekend newspaper. If you're self-employed, freelance or work as a contractor, the term IR35 should be one that you're familiar with. Indeed, it may even produce a laxative effect. The draft finance bill confirmed last week that from next April, these new rules designed to combat so-called disguised employment will put employers on the hook if they fail to deduct tax and national insurance from the fees of contractors who are considered to be employees in all but name. IPSI, the Association of Independent Professionals and the Self-Employed, had argued for these changes to be postponed due to, what it says, huge confusion and fear amongst freelancers about how the rules will be applied. Well, Chief Executive Chris Bryce joins me now in the FT studio. Welcome, Chris. Good morning. So what do these changes mean for freelancers? Who stands to be affected? 
Well, what it means in essence is that the uh, risk and decision around your own tax status as a small businessman is completely taken out of your hands. You have no say in the matter whatsoever. And the uh, engager, the client, we, we refer to them often as the end user, are now the decision takers. Uh, the engager will never understand exactly how the small business uh, is being operated by the contractor. And therefore, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to make the correct decision. About 170,000 people, uh, at the very least, are going to be affected by this. Um, they're taking on all the risk, but have none of the decision-making power anymore. So why is Ipsy so worried about the personal finance pitfalls? How could this hit people in the wallet? Well, they will be hit in the wallet very hard, in fact, because they'll end up paying two sets of employers' tax, uh, national insurance, and, of course, their own income tax, as, as they quite rightly should. What it will mean is all the uh, employment taxes that we refer to, you know, national insurance, will be transferred, the liability for them will be transferred directly to the contractor. And these, empl these employment taxes are, are artificial because they're not employees. However, none of the benefits of being an employee uh, will be given to these contractors. So eventually the contractor will end up paying proportionately more tax than an employee, but get none of the employee benefits. And those benefits would include things like? Holiday pay, sick pay, maternity leave, uh, pension contributions, training, uh, business expenses, you name it, the contractor does not get it. So why do you think HMRC is not ready for these changes and should delay the implementation beyond April? Well, <laughs> HMRC is definitely not ready. Uh, they have lost six out of the last seven IR35 cases uh, that uh, have gone to tribunal. They don't understand their, their own system. And of course, the irony is that IPSE, an organisation formed to help these contractors, has been very active in monitoring what's been happening in the public sector, which is now being introduced in the private sector as of next April. And we see uh, HMRC completely unable to even control the public sector and, and get it right in the public sector, uh, which is bizarre. And in fact, we, we have backed one of our members uh, to an HMR, where HMRC with a client uh, they got it wrong, and the member... So HMRC was employing a contractor. Engaging a contractor, yes. And they got the decision wrong, and they ended up having to pay holiday pay to a contractor, which is bizarre. HMRC can't get it right. So there seems to be a lot of confusion about the rules. Now, the FT has been covering um, the different developments on IR35, and HMRC has hit back at some of these claims, saying it's seen no reliable evidence that private sector firms will be unable to assess contractors properly, adding that evidence from the public sector reforms showed most public authorities were making assessments on a case-by-case -case basis rather than blanketing all contractors into PAYE situation. HMRC has also told the FT that applying a decision to a group of off-payroll workers with the same role, working practices and contractual conditions can be appropriate in some circumstances. However, it is not right to rule all engagements to be within or outside the rules, irrespective of the contractual terms and actual working arrangements. So you get an idea um, in their statement there of how, how convoluted this can be. But listeners who are worrying about being in scope, as the tax authorities would say, of these new re regulations can do an online test. Chris, will that help? Frankly, no. The, uh, the online test is been shown time and time again uh, to be heavily weighted uh, against a, a sensible decision. 
uh, on this. It's, it's called the Czech Employment Status Tool, or CEST for short. And CEST does not take account of case law. It ignores one of the, the basic tenets of case law about something very complicated called mutual, mutuality of obligation. I, I would contest that uh, HMRC say that there is no reliable evidence that firms will be affected because we've seen in the, in the public sector, which is the precursor to these private sector arrangements, that in the public sector, especially NHS, 51% of hiring managers said they lost skilled contractors. 52% said they experienced delays, cancellations or increased costs of project and hiring. 80% said the changes increased their admin burden and workload. And only 55% of hiring managers said that assessed engagements individually after the changes. So 45% are bulk assessing, which HMRC itself says shouldn't be done. And in fact, in one particular case within the NHS, uh, we went to court to say that the bulk assessments should not be carried out and the NHS were forced to reassess contractors. The whole thing is frankly a mess and HMRC and government need to stand back, take a deep breath, and withdraw this uh, from the finance bill uh, before it's too late. Take a couple of years to actually look at the mess and sort it out, and Ipsy stand willing to work with them to help them sort it out. Well, thanks very much there to Chris Bryce. You can read more about IR35 on our website, ft.com slash money, including the story about the finance bill last week and a comprehensive feature by the money team's resident tax specialist, Emma Ajimang. Well, I'm delighted to tell listeners that Emma got married last Saturday. We've let her have a few weeks off to go on honeymoon. You could call it a tax break. Moving swiftly on, fine wine is not an investment that's to everyone's taste. Indeed, our own in-house expert regards it more of a hobby with side benefits. But as someone who enjoys drinking wine, it's nevertheless fascinating to see what's going on at the top of the wine market. And joining me now in the studio is Alan Livesey, wine lover and research editor for FT Lex. Welcome, Alan. Hello. Well, in your day job on the Lex team, you're always on the lookout for questionable valuations. But you think that some of these could apply to many wines from the Burgundy region. I think the uh, the top Burgundies, the most sought after, have been doing very, very well now for three, four, five years. Um, whereas top Bordeaux, the names that many people will know of, uh, Chateau Lafitte and things like that, maybe they've, I wouldn't say they've gone off the boil, they've done okay, but Burgundy has gone completely crazy, especially the most expensive ones. They have gone up four or five times in the last five years. Mm, which is pretty incredible. Another incredible fact um, that listeners might not appreciate, obviously you have stock markets and various indices for tracking the value of, uh, of the companies that you write about in the Lex column, but there's an equivalent in the fine wine world. Mm, yeah, and so there are, there are indices on the top Burgundies, for instance, which is what I was writing about in the article. And uh, uh, one exchange, wine exchange called Livex has one for Burgundies. And that has actually fallen this year by about oh, 6 or 7%. It may not sound like a lot, but this, this index of the top Burgundies price index has been going up for a long time. In fact, this year it had six straight months of drop in a row. And that's significant because the index was formed in, I think, 2003, and it's never had that many consecutive drops. Mm, but wine experts are quite concerned by this, but they don't think that all Burgundies are vulnerable to price falls. The most 
sought after of these wines. Some of the ones that are really are so eye-wateringly expensive. Yeah, how uh, expensive? Uh, Domaine Romane Conte makes uh, one of their top cuvées, uh, Romane Conte, and it's actually called that. And uh, they make a couple. They also make a white Montrachet. One of the red wines, the top Romane Conte, goes for about 16,500 pounds a bottle. A bottle, not a case. Just for and just one bottle. And I was uh, going to say in the in the piece that really, if you could get a case of these together, it'd probably buy you a flat in uh, in in North London. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's so rare to see yeah. so many together all in one place. So so those top top ones are not so vulnerable to price falls, but it's the ones that are kind of nearer to the top vineyards where prices are perhaps. I think that's right. And uh, the feeling is that Domain Romano Conte it's in such short supply and some others that you know, you're probably not going to see that much of a drop. There is enough of a really, really wealthy consumer to want to keep buying these bottles. Some of the ones that might be on the sidelines that where they have just need to be a bit careful. Uh, they may have run up a lot, the sort of second tier ones, and I think you can get those from your wine dealers. Those may be vulnerable. And I think what the wine merchants are telling me is some of those are being sold in favor of other areas, not just other Burgundies, but maybe moving into Bordeaux. Well, yes. And, and you say in the piece that you wrote in FT Money that from an investment point of view, um, many people are looking at Bordeaux and thinking that that could be a better bet. I think on a relative value basis, it is. I mean, it, it all depends on your taste. There's a certain amount of exclusivity, but there's exclusivity on some of these top Bordeaux. And Another thing I was pointing out is, you know, in some cases, you can take a bottle of Domaine Leroy's top Burgundy, a bottle of that, and buy two cases of the finest Chateau Rothschild, you know, Rothschild, and then go to dinner at the finest restaurant in Paris and still have spare change. <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> you know. That, so there are real mismatches now for wines that are giving the, given the same rating, but the prices are just insanely different. Now, there are many factors, of course, driving the top of the wine market. Famously, wine writers have, have written about buyers in Asia who are you know, paying top dollar for the top wines. And um, maybe this is an apocryphal story, but diluting them with Diet Coke. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Email. I think that's probably disagree? over now. I think, <laughs> I, I think that what I'm hearing actually is that the Asian buyer is much more you know, switched on and much more mature in that regard. And you also mentioned in your piece that certainly for, for buyers of Burgundy, it's the big tech companies and people in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley. Yeah, talking talking to, um, uh, you know, merchants out there, uh, J.L. Buckley, they, they, they are still seeing a lot of interest. Americans really like their Burgundy. He, what I'm hearing is there is some switching. Right. There are, as I said, when second tier Burgundies, they might be moving into the Rhone area, just an area just south of Burgundy. Very super duper wines there, too, but much cheaper. And also some recycling, as I say, of profits into Bordeaux, fine Bordeaux. So that's happening around the world. Well, from my point of view, if you can sell one bottle and buy more wine, sounds like a very good deal. But yeah. finally, it would be rude of me not to ask you, for our listeners, whose wallets were perhaps not as large um, as some of the executives in, in Silicon Valley, are there any wines that listeners should aim to try for themselves? Well, I think if you're if you're still if you're keen on Burgundy, and Burgundy has always made lovely wines, and very you know the parcels are small. These the, the crops and the number of uh, the amount of wine they produce is a little. But there are some areas like Chari Le Bon, 
um, is a sort of right on the edge of Burgundy. In the past, it was not seen as such a, a major a- area, uh, but there are some fantastic wines there in the Premier Cru. Or if you get a very, very good maker, uh, Domaine Lafarge, and they they make uh, a Volnay that is just lovely, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the best of the best of the best. And I think those are accessible Sunday lunch wines, you know, maybe 20, 25 pounds a bottle max, maybe 30. But not not killer, not sixteen thousand. That's for sure. <laughs> no, well, certainly on on the wages the FT pays us, I think that's perfectly. That's helpful. definitely not the case. Well, thank you very much there to Alan Livesey. You can read Alan's piece on changing tastes in the wine market now on ft.com/money. Now, me and Alan are offer a chilled glass of rosé at lunch because that's all from the FT Money Show this week. If you want to get in touch with me, Claire Barrett, or indeed our team of writers, or even suggest a topic that you'd like to hear us talk about on a few future podcast, you can email us money at ft.com. To stay up to date with the latest money news, follow us on Twitter at FT Money or check out our new LinkedIn page. Search for Financial Times Your Money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Chin chin. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.